I saw a headline this past week that got my attention. Maybe some of you have seen it as well. Uh, 2,700-year-old shipwreck discovered. That's old. 2,700 years old. Uh, it seems that an international team of, of researchers has discovered uh, this Phoenician ship that was wrecked off the coast of the island of Malta roughly around the year 700 B.C. And even though it's pretty far down in the water, the cargo is incredibly intact. Uh, they think that perhaps even the hull, wooden, though of course it is, might be intact as well once they get down there in the sand. It's an astonishing, astonishing find for archaeologists and uh, historians, uh, not just looking there at the cargo and getting a sense of, you know, where might the ship have gone and been and its ports of call and all of that. But if you know anything about ancient history, the Phoenicians were for some 1,200 years the shipbuilders in the Mediterranean area, crisscrossing back and forth as traders and and sailors, it's just, you know, stuff of legend in terms of what they could do with the technology that they had. And they're laying down there in the silt as the remains of, of one of their, their vessels. Um, it's quite a find. It's quite a treasure. Well, okay, so that's a roughly 700 B.C. Just a little over a century later, a little further than that, about 120 years or so, there's another treasure. Um, it's a literary treasure, in this case, that was composed. Uh, it's not so much lost, but oftentimes neglected. Uh, it gives us insights not into Phoenician shipbuilding, but life in the world as it was then, and here's the deal, now. It's the Book of Lamentations. The Book of Lamentations. Uh, we're going to be moving into a series uh, looking at that, that book in the Old Testament here in the next several weeks. We're going to start that uh, this morning. Uh, but I want to do something a little different. In order to start looking at the, if you will, the poetical reflections of the author of Lamentations regarding the, uh, the siege and fall of Jerusalem, I want to start by looking at an historical account of the siege and fall of Jerusalem. So I know it sounds kind of weird. We're going to start a series in Lamentations, but I'm actually going to read from 2 Kings. Okay, It's one of the accounts that we have in the, in the Old Testament of the events that the author of Lamentations is actually reflecting on in a poetic way. So if you've got your Old Testament, you may have gone to Lamentations. That's fine. We're going to get there. But go a few books to the left. We're going to 2 Kings. Now that's, if you're trying to find it, uh, it's before the books 1 and 2 Samuel. It is, excuse me, it's after the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, it, then you've got 1 and 2 Kings, and you've got 1 and 2 Chronicles. Somewhere in there you should be able to find that um, in, in the Old Testament. It's quite a swath that I've just given you there. Um, we're in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 25. It's the last chapter in 2 Kings, just before you get to 1 Chronicles. 2 Kings 25, I'm just going to read 12 verses, uh, just the first 12 verses of 2 Kings 25. Hear now the word of God. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. 
and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans, and that's a reference, just another way of referring to the Babylonians, though the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nabuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes with which to see and ears with which to hear, hearts that beat in cadence with your own. Oh, that we would understand, uh, that we would grow in appreciation of this much neglected text that we're going to be looking at in these coming weeks, and we ask that you would give us insight, not just for then, but for now, um, that we would understand what a, a lament is, um, and how it is we can sing them as well. In your name we pray, amen. Children should be seen and not heard. That was what I inferred, actually it's what was said by an older couple that I was visiting with at a church, uh, I was part of a church many years ago in a place far, far away. Um, children should be seen and not heard. In our day, children were shown their place. They knew their place. We adults, when we sat down at the table, we ate first. When we were done, they got to eat. Children were taught their place. They knew their Place. You know, when it comes to decisions that need to be made for them, we don't need to hear from them. We make those decisions for them. They should be, um, well, they should speak when spoken to. Children should be seen, not heard. You know, I, I, I don't doubt there's some wisdom in the mix there in terms of its intentions. I don't doubt that to some degree the old school, if I can put it that way, that came up with that phrase, uh, meant well. But I will tell you I am very nervous about that phrase because I think it panders too much to the selfishness of adults. And we can be quite that. 
But bear with me for a minute. Let's take that little axiom, children should be seen and not heard, and transpose it over here to our relationship with God. And just bear with me, run with me here. I'm not saying, by the way, but I'm not, by transposing that over, I'm not saying for a minute that we should forget about praying, that we should you know, have a dull ear to his gracious call and invitation and wooing of us to come as children into the throne room of heaven and he welcomes us with, with open arms. That's not my intent. But I do want you to think about this, of the relational dynamics between us and God. First, just relationships in general. Relationships are tricky things. You have to be willing, if you're really going to be in a vital, living, reciprocal relationship of any kind, you have to be willing to be um, confronted. You have to be willing to be challenged. You have to be willing to be corrected. Otherwise, it's not a relationship. I don't know what it is, but it's not that. So that's the kind, we're in that, those kind of dynamics with who? With God, with the, the living God, the creator and sustainer of everything who can see so much further and better than any of us could ever hope to on our very best day. And we come into that thinking we've got some insight to share with him. That we've got a clue that we need to relay to him. So it's, it's in that sense I want you just to think with me, you know, understanding in that context that I wonder if perhaps we might want to say in a limited sort of way, not throwing prayer out, that maybe we are the children who should be seen and not heard. In that sense, you, you with me? In the sense of recognizing, well, we read from Isaiah 55 earlier, right? extraordinary in terms of its scope, and you could read the last chapters of Job and you get the same thing. The point being, God is a mysterious God. His ways are beyond our ways. Um, he can be known, but not comprehended. He can be known truly and accurately. He has revealed himself to us without any tricks or sleights of hand. But we can't comprehend and grasp Him. The Lord, His ways are mysterious. And that is cause for us all the more as children to listen, learn, and wonder. And Lamentations, I think, shows us something increasingly of that. It gives us all the more reason to listen and learn and wonder. And then, of course, then respond. Respond in ways that are appropriate. We see that in three ways. And, and this is, these are just impressions that I'm getting, having read through the book a few times over the last several weeks, read it, listened to it, reread it, listened to it some more, written out a lot. Just, these are some impressions I would just want to share with you. It's, it's, it's not, we're not digging into one particular text or one particular chapter this morning. It's more of a broad sweep of the book and some themes I think we can see here. And, and some things that we can learn have to do with the Lord and the mysteries of his ways. The complexity of suffering is one. Uh, another would be the nuances of expression as how we respond to him. Uh, and another, the third, would be his own faithfulness. And it's what that means and its implications for us. 
Let's look at these things here just for a few minutes. These uh, three things, that, these manifestations of the mysteries of his ways and uh, how we then need to be able to listen and learn and wonder. Complexity of suffering. That's the first thing. Um, to understand that, to even begin to talk about the complexity, especially as far as the causes and what's leading to our suffering and our struggles, we need to understand something of the context of what's happening here, how we got to, for instance, the text that I read a moment ago from 2 Kings 25, or you could read Jeremiah 52. That would be another place to look as well. Israel had been the recipient over the course of centuries of rich promises, beginning, you could say, with Abraham. Um, the father of the nation. Centuries after that, there was the, the, uh, the promises made uh, to Moses in the his time, after the Exodus, after the Passover, the giving of the, the law, which was really intended to be a guide as far as a right response to the Lord and His grace and His care over His people. Centuries after that, you've got, uh, you, you could say... Um, the enthroning of all this, the, 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 the culminations of so many of these promises with uh, David. David coming to the throne and the crown. Um, rich, rich promises over the course of centuries they were the recipients of. That then sadly led to, to callous presumption on their part. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the sacred city. Nothing can touch Jerusalem. God lives here. The temple is, is here. No one can touch us. No harm can come to us because of Jerusalem, which then led to a sad, tragic decline that you can read and the prophets speak to this again and again, warning the people and, and horrific apostasy the wor of the worst kinds. And then to finally, what we read of in 2 Kings 25, it all reduced to rubble, literally. And the cries of the people, a crisis of faith, really, at this point, because of the presumption and then the reality coming crashing in upon them, a, a real crisis of faith. And you get a sense of that in the repetition in, in three places of a statement of exclamation in, in Lamentations 1, 1, 2, 1, and 4, 1. For instance, how, how lonely sits the people that was, the city, excuse me, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Chapter 4, verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Now, what was the cause of all this? How did things come about in this way? Now, I want you to understand the complexity here that even these five poems, chapters, of the make up the book of Lamentations speak to. Now, you could, we could talk about the human causes, and those are real. The Babylonian army, the siege, the slaughter, and the exile. That's part of the, an explanation of the, of the suffering. Absolutely. Others. Or you could speak in terms of others as far as the leaders of the people. 
and, and the, we're going to get into this over the coming weeks. Um, there are several texts that speak of this, of the prophets, the priests, false shepherds leading them astray. Others, the army, the, their own leaders. But it's not just that. Lamentations is very clear about also it was their, not just the, the sin and rebellion of the leaders, but of their, their own. It's very honest about that. Verse, chapter 1, verse 5, as a for instance, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. Or verse 18 of chapter 1, the Lord is in the right for I have rebelled against His word. Ah, but you see, it's not just on the horizontal plane that you have an explanation as to how all this came about because of the army, because of the leaders, because of the people. Lamentations is also very, very clear. And you may have picked up on, you know, if you're just listening carefully, this is the Lord's doing. It's not something He just allowed to happen. He did it. He's an active agent in what was transpiring here. It wasn't just allowed. It, it, you see in chapter 2, I'm just going to fly through this. You got to just keep your eyes open. You'll, you'll pick up on this. I want you just to see the verbs. I'm going to fly through about 10 verses here. Just the verbs. Um, verse 1. He is cast down, not remembered, swallowed up, broken down, brought down, cut down, withdrawn his hand, burned like a flaming fire, bent his bow, killed those who were delightful, poured out his fury, become like an enemy, swallowed up, multiplied mourning and lamentation, laid waste, laid in ruins. God is the subject of every one of those verbs. You know who the object is? His people. Israel. They are on the receiving end. Of all of that. My point in bringing this up is there is complexity that Lamentations is reminding us of when it comes to the explanation and causes of suffering in this world and in our lives. And we dare not be simplistic in our understanding and explanations that we give to ourselves or to others. We dare not spin this according to what was more convenient and comfortable for our understanding. Spin, right? The news cycles politicians, the press, you think of events in Iraq or Ferguson, Missouri, or the debates about immigration or health care or what marriage is or isn't, and there's spin going on all the time on the left and the right. Why? Because people's livelihoods are at stake, you understand. I am something of a cynic. Yes, I am. The livelihoods are, are at stake. World views are at risk here, depending on how you interpret these things. And so facts are twisted, reports are bent, spin. My friends, when it comes to understanding issues such as what is the cause of suffering in this world, we dare not spin. We've got to hear it straight. Even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if it makes us nervous, even if it just throws us for a loop, we dare not dumb it down, spin it out. We've got to be willing to grapple with what the Scriptures say here. We may not like it, but we dare not spin it. God's ways are higher than ours. We are but creatures, you know. 
Um, his ways are mysterious. I, 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 I dare say that is cause for us all the more to listen and learn and wonder. That's the first point. Second, following right up on its heels, is the nuances of expression. How do we respond to that? You know, what do we see here in these laments? What's fascinating when you get down into this and start to study it, there's a lot of formality of structure here in the book of Lamentations. It's a work of literary art. It's an ancient masterpiece. This is not just free form. The author of Lamentations is just not, he did not just sit down and write what came to mind. And you see that in the structure. Now, it doesn't come out so well in the English. But, but Hebrew scholars will tell you, you see it in, in two ways. One in the meter. Again and again through these poems, you see this, this clear structure of, of three words, then two, three words, then two, three words, then two, intended to set up like a cadence. Uh, it's, it feels like limping as you're reading through it in the, in the original. Limping as you're, though you're in a funeral procession listening to a dirge. It has that kind of meter to it. This is this clearly structure. It's meant to communicate something. There's something else here. Not just meter, but the acrostics. That's a fancy-schmancy term for you literary giants out there might know what I'm talking about here. The rest of us, like me, need an explanation. And that would be the sections begin with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and then move sequentially. We would do it A, B, C, D. For instance, chapters 1, 2, and 4, you've got 22 verses. Each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and moves through the 22 letters like that in sequence. Chapter 3 is an exception because it's 66 verses. Wait till we get to that scripture reading. 66 verses, okay, in groups of three verses, each group of three beginning with one letter in the Hebrew alphabet and moving through in 22 groups. You get the idea? There's structure here. Even chapter 5, which does not have the acrostic, still has 22 verses corresponding directly with the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The point, to bore you, no, the point. It would seem that there's intentionality here uh, so that we could likely, as an, a, as a, um, an aid in memorization, partly, that seems to be it, also to give a full expression. You might say an A to Z to really just get it out. But not just that. To lend structure and form to feelings that most likely would completely run away with us. To try and harness a hurricane. A hurricane of suffering and grief. Um, that seems to be some of what's going on here. Or put it this way. They create channels of authenticity, um, roadways to express sorrow, paths to express pain. And there's so much in this book as far as expressions of pain are concerned. For instance, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, from the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. And then this book is filled with images like this. My, my point is, I think that Lamentations is showing us here that on the one hand, while Scripture gives us no permission or license whatsoever to scream at God, 
it does invite us to cry to him. In fact, this is, where do we get this book ultimately? It's God's word to us. You understand? He loves us so. He knows our limits so. He knows we need help in this. Such that he's taking us by the hand and showing us how to lament. Thinking in terms of the limits and his compassion. Think with me. You parents of young children, or those of you who have any memory of that, you haven't intentionally tried to forget. Um, You know you need to structure the day with your youngest ones around the nap schedule, right? Because you're going to have trouble come at a point in the day if you haven't. The zoo trip, here's a tip. Go to the zoo, I'm just going to pick a time, from 9 to noon, be back after lunch, because if you don't, you're going to have a meltdown, right? Now, why are you doing that? You're structuring it according to your knowledge and love and the limits of your children. You know them, and you're providing that structure for them. Let things fly apart. It's something in some kind of crazy analogy here, I think, to what we see here in the book of Lamentations. God knows us. He knows the limits. He knows we can only take but so much, and then when we get to that point, we don't know what to do and how to express it, and he's showing us here. And yes, there's a place for extemporaneous just saying it, but at the same time, Sometimes your heart is so broken and bruised, you just feel mute. But you have to say something. And his love for us, his knowledge of us is such, and his love for us is such, we can take texts like the Psalms, like the Sermon on the Mount, like the Beatitudes, like the Fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians 5, or Lamentations, and pray it. Because we need someone to show us how. His faithfulness, his, his, excuse me, his, uh, his, his love for us, while his ways are mysterious, his love for us is so clear. One other thing, that is the last thing, the faithfulness, his own faithfulness to us. Um, it comes out very clearly here in the book of Lamentations that God is a God who will do what he said. And because he is a God who will do what he said, we can trust him. We can trust him. Again and again through this book, there's, there's references back, hearkening back to uh, the covenant renewal ceremony, I guess you could put it, that took place centuries before in the plains of Moab. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 31, about how God, just on the eve of the people entering into the promised land, the Lord laid out in this, I would really encourage you, go back and read this. He said, if you respond to, to my love, to my word, to my promises, to my covenant, in these ways, I promise to bless you and to pour out my favor upon you. But if you trample my love, if you spurn my love and my passion for you, there will be curses come down upon you. Now what do we see with the book of Lamentations? God is a God who does what he says. Now, of course, that may make us more or less uncomfortable. Um, But that's part, at least, of some of the message here, that he is a God that can be trusted. 
He will do what he said. Three years ago, um, when our son Alex was a wee little lad, and uh, this, this is the Lucky Charms disaster or crisis. This is the story. It's the stuff of legend in our, in our house, okay? Um, there were one too many mornings, and it had gone on for a series of mornings, where I looked in the cereal bowl, the young little laddie, he thinks he's done. Can I get up? Can I get up? And all I'm seeing, well, all the, oddly enough, all the marshmallows are gone. But there are these soggy little cereal blobs floating, floating, and they won't go away, and he's not eating them. So finally, I just had to say to the poor little guy, you do that one more time. I've said it several times. You do this one more time, and I'm throwing the box away. Now, he, of course, knows I'm a miser and I'm a cheapskate, even at that age, and he's going to call my bluff. So the next morning, marshmallows are gone, cereal blobs floating in there, and I said, I'm sorry. And I took the box, and I began to make my way across that kitchen to the pantry where the trash can was, and I remember those poor little eyes welling up with tears and that poor little lip a-quivering, and I remember thinking for a moment, how else is he going to know that dad is going to do what dad said he's going to do if I back off now on a box of lucky charms when there's no stakes involved except his quivering lip? Bye-bye, box. Now that is a really, really surfacey, small analogy compared to the faithfulness of our God to do what he said he's going to do. Now what do you do with that besides have a charming little story about cereal? Here's what I think we can do with that. I want you to consider, maybe as an exercise this week or this afternoon, list your concerns. I don't mean mentally, I mean on a piece of paper. List the things that weigh your heart down. Your marriage, your children, your job, your finances, your health, your future. List your concerns and list his promises. Never to leave you or forsake you. That nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. That he works all things for the good of those who love him that he always will equip you for the things he has called you to. And that praise God even now, but ultimately in the future he is making all things new. You need, we need to take the list of the concerns, tie them, wed them, bind them to the list of the promises. And know that this is a God that when he says he's going to do something, will do it. He is faithful. This is the heart of the book of Lamentations. If, you only had, if I had one shot at preaching this book, it would be chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. In the midst of it all, the author says, I'll back up to verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. My friends, that's the center of our hope. It's the center of this book. It's the center of our hope. The faithfulness of the Lord to do what it is that He said He would do. To send one for our sake who would, take, who would become the curse in our place. And then sing the lament for us. The Lord Jesus. That's what this book is ultimately about. It's about Him. Pointing towards Him. The exile that He experienced makes what Jerusalem went through, His exile, the cross and the tomb, makes the exile He went through, Jerusalem's exile, it makes that look like a, a day at the beach. A holiday. It makes their lament looked like a catchy little ditty compared to what he went through for our sakes. That we could then sing the lament to him because he has sung the lament for us. Let's pray. Lord, we need a book that weeps. We need a God that weeps. We need a Savior who weeps. And we thank You that that Savior has come and come for us. It's not really the case that You intend for us to be seen and not heard. We know that. Because You do see us. You do hear us. You love us so. But at the same time, we do need to come as children. Children open and receptive and relying to you, not foolishly immature, believing that we know. We know, and we can handle it. Help us to come as you intend us to come, as children who are listening wrestling with the complexity of suffering and its causes and listening. Listening to what you were showing us as far as how to respond and all its rich nuances and what that looks like when we just feel like we've got nothing to say. The significance of your faithfulness and how we can truly always trust you because you have shown yourself to be so trustworthy in all things. So Lord, we commit this study to you in these coming weeks and ask that you would make us wise, make us more like Jesus, the one who has undergone the exile and sung the lament for us. In your name we pray. Amen.